Welcome to the Peckway Church Podcast. We're glad you're here. At Peckway, our mission is to transform lives by connecting people with God and with each other. It's our hope that this message will give you hope and encourage you to take the next step in your journey with Christ. For more information about our services and weekly ministries, visit us at peckwaychurch.com. Good morning. I want to invite you to stand as we begin worship. Our hero of heaven is who we're worshiping today. He is doing great things in our hearts and lives. And we're celebrating that here in this place today. Let's worship him. Come, let us worship our King. Come, let us bow at his feet. He has done great. Free every captive and break it. 
have a seat. Sorry, I had to turn my back on you there for a second. But uh, so great to see you here this morning. Thank you for coming out and uh, and being here in person with us. Thank you for being online this morning, um, for being all together as we worship God, no matter where we're at. And uh, that's a great thing that we can celebrate together doing. You know, we're wrapping up our sermon series. I need more than two hands here. I'm going to use this stool. But... Uh, but we're wrapping up our sermon series, and we've been take, talking about um, these great men and women, the models of greatness uh, through the lives of these people. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm excited as we kind of come to the end here, and we have this culmination of what we've been talking about. And, uh, you know, today we're going to talk about the life of Daniel, and uh, we're going to talk about the discipline that he had. And so I don't know what word comes to mind when you think discipline. You might think punishment or uh, as a child, discipline, you know, that kind of thing. But the discipline we're talking about this morning is the dedication, the commitment to doing something. And uh, I want to read this scripture to you. You know, I was thinking about the the Olympic Games, and, uh, you know, we can look all the way back to the, uh, in the Bible about the games that, that were happening then, but this is what Paul says. He says, do, not, do you not know that the race, uh, in a race, all runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly, I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. Uh, no, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave. So after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. You know, and as I think about uh, these men and women, uh, you, you might think that, well, they were just kind of born with that, right? That they have these special gifts and talents. And yes, we're born with different things, right? Um, but it takes work to be great at something. And so I want to share a video with you this morning. I'm not going to steal all the thunder from it. But as we think about this, this, the great men and women, these models of greatness, let's reflect on that as we watch this video together. When did we decide that greatness was something you're born with? Given only to superstars. Reserved for a few that were lucky enough to get the right strings of DNA. Greatness is earned, given to those who pay for it with their time and effort. It's available for all of us, within everyone's reach. But it takes work. Practice. Dedication. You have to make it a priority in your life. Greatness isn't a right, it's an opportunity. Discrimination is not in its character, nor does it judge. Greatness doesn't know these things. The only thing it cares about is if you are committed. And that's what we're going to see in the life of Daniel today, that commitment that he had. And that's what God used to make him great. 
uh, is how he was committed to God in all circumstances. Uh, maybe you have questions about that today. Maybe you want resources that can help you be dedicated and committed so that you can have this relationship with Jesus that stands the test of time. Inside of your bulletin this morning is a green connection card. I'm going to invite all of us to take it out. We ask everyone to fill out this card. So uh, if you would begin doing that, I would really appreciate that. Uh, and on the back of that card are some places that you can write uh, if you don't have anything there. There's a my decision today. I'd like more information or how you can make a difference. But if none of those things are what you want to know about, feel free to write in the box there uh, something that you might have a question about. Uh, you can wait till the end after the sermon and do that today. But um, you can also write your prayer request. We love to be able to partner with you and walk with you uh, in this journey of the Christian life and pray about things. Um, and so uh, tr if you would trust us, we would love to do that. You can also fill out the online connection card there. The host is going to put that in the, in the chat window. You can click on that. You can also find it at the top of your browser page. But uh, reach out. We would love to say hello and, and to tell you thank you for being here and a part of this service today. Well, you know, as I was thinking through uh, these different um, these different principles, these different things that Daniel did in his life and that commitment he had. And, you know, we saw a great example through the video just now uh, of what makes greatness for sports, right? But then we saw the young man at the end sit on the couch and he was reading God's word, spending time with him and building uh, his life on the principles of God's word. And so that's what I want us to sing about this morning. I'm going to invite you to stand with us uh, as we continue worshiping together. But we're going to remind ourselves that when we build our lives on God uh, and the principles that he has for us, that he guides us, he leads us, and gives us wisdom.
heart's prayer this morning that with every breath that you take, every moment that he gives you, that you're going to give it back to him. 
because he's worthy. He's worthy of everything, no matter what things we face in life, what circumstances. And so um, you've poured out praise on him today. He's here. His presence is filling this place. And, um, so I want to just give us just a quiet moment to just search our hearts today, see if there's anything that we need to uh, bring to him, to leave at his feet today. you today. We thank you, Father, for your promises to us. Father, as we look once again at someone's life that you've used as an example for us, Father, may we look at our own lives and see what are we dedicating our lives to? What are we spending our lives on, Father? Father, may we grasp the depth of what it is to spend time with you, Lord, to let go of vain things, God, things that we try to fill our hearts and lives with that become ashes, Lord, that don't fill those empty places within us. But as we go to you, as we spend time with you, Lord, as we develop those that relationship with you, Father, that you fill our hearts with peace, our, our lives with light, that you give us wisdom. And uh, Lord, uh, Father, that you, as we honor you, you bless us, you honor us. And so may we conform our lives to you today as we hear your word. And we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, worship team. And again, I just want to join with Scott, whether you're online or here in the building, by just saying it is truly good to be with you. And as Scott has pointed out today, we are wrapping up that series that we started five weeks ago, really six weeks ago, thanks to the weather, called Models of Greatness. And, and what we've been doing in this series, if this is your very first Sunday, let me catch you up very quickly, let me bring you up to speed, is what we've been doing in this series is we've been looking at the importance, and I would say also the power of choice. For again, I started at the very beginning of the series quoting Jim Collins, who is a business expert, a, a leader in the business community, and he pointed out and points out in his book, Great by Choice, that our temptation, yours and mine, by default, is when we struggle in life and we're struggling for this thing called greatness, what we often do when we don't experience is we, we look to our circumstances or we point to what we call our bad luck and we say, that's the reason I'm not great. That's the reason I'm not experiencing greatness. But I want you to listen to what Colin says, really what he summarizes his research in the book. Here's what he writes. He says, if there's one overarching message arising for more than 6,000 years, of combined corporate history across our research, it would be this. Greatness is not primarily a matter of circumstances. 
Greatness is first and foremost a matter of conscious choice. And for that reason, if we really accept that, and I believe Collins is right, if we really believe that we are great by choice, that it is something we can choose, then the question we need to ask, especially I think at the beginning of a year, is to say, God, what choices should we be making then, right? I mean, isn't that the logical corollary that if we say we're great by choice, then we ought to ask ourselves, so what choices do we need to make? And so that's what we've been doing in this series. We've been examining the lives of five great individuals. Three men, two women, and the single choice each of them made that set them up, propelled them into greatness. And again, by summary, what we've looked at so far, we looked at Solomon and his conscious choice for wisdom. Then the following week, the second week of the series, we looked at a woman named Esther and her choice for self-sacrifice. Then in the third week, we looked at Joseph and his choice for integrity. Last week, we looked at a woman named Deborah and her choice for courage. And then today, we're going to look at a man named Daniel and his choice for discipline. Now, let's look at the story of Daniel. Let me just kind of put you in the historical context, because if we're going to understand and appreciate Daniel's choice, then we need to understand what was going on in his lifetime. And during his lifetime, we need to recognize that the Babylonian Empire really controlled all of the known world. Not all, not all the world, but all the known world. And one of the countries Babylon controlled, among many, many others, was really specifically the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. And they controlled them because, quite honestly, over a period of several hundred years, the people of God, the, the the people of Judah, and before that, the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, were on this perpetual downward spiral away from God, disobedience to God, to finally and ultimately God just had to withdraw his hand of protection and blessing from their lives. And as a result, they fell into captivity, not once, but twice in this period of history. First Israel, and now Judah. And Judah fell captive to the Babylonians. Now I say that because one of the things we need to understand about the Babylonians that was unique, in fact, I would say perhaps even ingenious, that's my assessment, is that when they conquered a people, instead of doing what the typical nation would do, what our bent would be, that is they say they would beat them in battle, and then the thing that would typically happen after that is they would just annihilate all the leaders. They would just kill them off. And, but the, the Babylonians didn't do that. And the reason they didn't do that is because they recognized that when you would try to annihilate a nation's leader and its culture, it breeds resentment, right? And ultimately, it, it fuels rebellion. And they thought, you know what, we're going to go at this thing a bit differently. So rather than seeking to annihilate, they sought to assimilate the conquered people. And the way they did that was they would select some of the current leaders, but more importantly, most, many, many young up-and-coming leaders of the nation, of royalty and, and intellect, and they would indoctrinate them. They would educate them in the ways of Babylon, the values of Babylon, the worldview of Babylon. And as a result, they got cooperation instead of insurrection. Does that make sense? And it was absolutely ingenious the way they approached it. Now, the reason I share all that with you is because Daniel was handpicked as one of those young potential leaders, up-and-coming leaders, to be indoctrinated, educated by the Babylonians. And take a look at what we read. It's described for us. We read, Then the king, that is Nebuchadnezzar, ordered the chief of his court officials to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without a physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, 
quick to understand and qualified to serve the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they would enter the king's service. And among these, from Judah, the text goes on, was Daniel. Now, what we are told there are many, many things, but what I want us to notice is the fact that Daniel, because he was smart, because he was good-looking, and yes, it was both that fit in that thing, he was handpicked to be educated, yes, indoctrinated into the Babylonian worldview, into the court. And I would suggest to you, and you're going to see in just a second, that Daniel was a really good pick. Because what we're going to find as we go through his story is he quickly rose through the ranks to ultimately, over a period of several years, he rose to the place of being one of three governors over the entire empire. A kid who started out a captive, a kid who started out a slave. But because of God's hand on his life, because of his discipline, because of his aptitude, he rose to the rank of second or rather third in command in the entire kingdom. Take a look at what it says. Darius the Mede, now understand those of you who like the historical context, that the Babylonians were now defeated by the Medo-Persians. Those of you who don't interest in that, forget that. But Darius the Mede, that's why he's put there, decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces. And he appointed a high officer to rule over each province. The king also chose Daniel and two others as administrators to supervise the high officers and protect the king's interests. Daniel soon proved himself more capable than all the other administrators and high officers. Because of Daniel's great ability, the king made plans to place him, and listen to this, over the entire empire. So again, if you were here for Joseph's story, the same thing's happening, that he is getting set up to be the second most powerful man, not in Egypt as, as in Joseph, but now in the Medo-Persian Empire. Well, you can imagine Darius' decision to do that for this little Jewish boy, now in his early 20s, didn't please anyone else in the empire, especially the officials, especially the royal officers. They were, to put it simply, mad about it. And so listen to what happened. Then the other administrators and high officers began searching for some fault in the way Daniel was handling government affairs, but they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. He was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. So they concluded, our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in the connection with the rules of his religion. And if you want to know why they said that, you need to go back to chapter 3. And those of you who grew up going to Bible school and Sunday school, then just think Daniel in the fiery furnace. That's how they knew that this man wouldn't compromise. So the administrators and high officers went to the king and said, Long live King Darius. We are all in agreement. We administrators, officials, high officers, advisors, and governors, that the king should make a law that will be strictly enforced. Give orders for, that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions. And now, your majesty, issue and sign this law so that it cannot be changed, an official law of the Medes and the Persians that cannot be revoked. So King Darius signed the law. But when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home, knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with its windows open toward Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to God. Now, there's a lot in that text, in that passage that we can unpack, folks. But what I want to focus on this morning, and what we've been talking about in this series, is the choice that Daniel made that truly defined his life, that truly propelled Daniel 
into greatness. And if you're not clear what the choice was, let's go back to verse 10 just so that we know. It says, but when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he, he went home and knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with its windows open toward Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he has always done, giving thanks to God. So here's the significant thing about that. We see clearly that the decision that Daniel made, the choice that he made, no matter what he knew would be the price, no, no matter how great the price, what Daniel chose to do was to maintain spiritual discipline, to maintain his honoring God. And his enemies knew that about Daniel, and so they zeroed in on it because they knew back to, again, to Daniel chapter 3 that Daniel would not compromise his spiritual commitment to God. He would not compromise his spiritual disciplines. And so here's what I want to do, and Pastor Scott earlier and aptly did, gave you a definition of discipline. Let me give you another one, one that I think, I hope will be useful, maybe more insightful for you. Here's how I want to define discipline for us today. Discipline is exerting self-imposed order in your life and mine in order to do what otherwise would not naturally get done. Now, some of you are looking at me with a glazed look, so let me say that again, and let's kind of take it apart. Discipline is exerting. It's effort. It is effort, folks, and it's self-imposed effort. So it's, it's exerting self-imposed order. It's something you and I choose to do for ourselves, in ourselves, and for ourselves, and it is bringing structure and order to our life and order for you and I to do something that naturally we would not do our, on our own. In other words, by default, we would choose not to do it. In other words, we would choose discipline so I won't eat four gallons of ice cream and maybe just choose to do one. That's discipline. And let me give you an example. Now that I've given you a definition, let me give you my favorite example of discipline because I think it's penetrating. It's a true story. And, and, and I'll just admit to you, I get this secondhand because I'm not a golfer. But back in the day, for those of you who are golfers, and I'm looking at Phil and a few others, but the reality is back in the day, I'm told, when Gary Player was still competing on the PGA, he often, frequently had people come up to him and, and say this, I would give anything to hit a golf ball like you do. And again, I'm told that because Gary Player was an incredibly gracious man, he would normally just shrug that off. He wouldn't respond to it. He would just shrug it off. That is until one really bad day when his graciousness ran out. And so when someone came to him and said, you know what, Mr. Player, I would, do, I would give anything to hit a golf ball like you. He said, no, you won't. He said, you'd give anything to hit a golf ball like me if it was easy. But let me tell you what it takes to hit a golf ball like me. To hit a golf ball like me, you need to get up at 5 o'clock every Monday morning, every Tuesday morning, every Thursday morning, every morning of the week, and go to the golf ball, golf course, and hit 1,000 golf balls. And he said, let me tell you what will happen when you hit 1,000 golf balls. Your hand will begin to bleed. And so in that process, you stop, you clean off the blood, you bandage your hand, you go back to the course, and you hit another 1,000 golf balls. He says, that's what it takes to hit a golf ball like me. And folks, I share that because I think that is a perfect example of what discipline is all about. But what we need to understand, and what we need to understand specifically in this context, is Daniel didn't just choose discipline for the game of golf. Daniel chose spiritual discipline. In other words, he chose to not live his, let his spiritual life to chance. 
He didn't choose to just invest in his spiritual life when it was convenient, when it fit his schedule. He didn't just hope that somehow his spiritual life would develop. He built his life around it, day in and day out. Now again, I share that because pick, pick your area of discipline. We all know people that are, pride themselves in being highly disciplined. I'll pick a couple that I know well from my associations. There are people I know and you know that are highly, highly disciplined when it comes to their physical fitness or when it comes to their finances. In fact, they pride themselves on it. And yet, many of those same people, when it comes to things the area of discipline that I believe is the most life-shaping, most important area of our life, our spiritual discipline, many of those same people, as much as it would bother them to hear it, would have to self-identify as being spiritually lazy, maybe even sloppy, because they just leave their spiritual fitness, their spiritual discipline to chance. That's why Paul wrote this, among other reasons. I want you to take a look at the next verse on your outline. I remember when I first read this, and at that time I was highly, highly committed to personal fitness, and it, and it took me and set me back on my heels like it should. It said bodily fitness has a certain value, but spiritual fitness is essential for both the present life and the life to come. There is no doubt about this, and Christians should remember it. Now, folks, at the very heart of that, I think Paul is getting at a principle for us and for Timothy, and here's the principle. What Paul wanted to understand is many of us unwittingly focus our discipline on the urgent rather than the important. And the problem with that, folks, is really clear. If you've ever you know, read the disciplines of highly effective people, if you've ever read um, some other literature, then you know, folks, and in, in experience has taught you that the important things in life, things like spending time with our children, investing in our personal and mental and spiritual development, they do not scream for our attention. In fact, we could go day after day, and we never seem to hear a peep from them. But on the other hand, folks, the urgent things in life, things like responding to texts, following social influencers, updating our social media status, folks, those things continually scream for our attention. And here's the problem with that. Great lives are not built on the urgent. They're built on the important. Which is why we need discipline, folks. Which is why we have to consciously choose to the important things in your life and mind and then discipline ourselves. Exert that self-imposed order so that we do them. Otherwise, the fact is true, it's for true for all of us, that the urgent things in your life and mind will crowd out the important things. And we never, ever will get to them. Daniel understood that. And Daniel, for that reason, built his life. He prioritized his life around his spiritual life. Now again, I live in the world that you live, and so I know what some of us are thinking. Maybe all of us are thinking, going, hey, that's great for Daniel, but I live in the real world. You know, I live in the real world of meetings and deadlines. I live in the real world of mortgage payments and mowing the lawn. I live in the real world of my kids' soccer games and, and their t-ball practices. I don't set my schedule. It schedules me. Have you some way ever thought that, ever said that? I don't, I don't schedule my time. It schedules me. And if Daniel were here today, I think he would say to us, I believe studying his life now for 20-some years of my life, I believe Daniel would say to this, to you and to me, he'd say, don't kid yourself. Don't kid yourself. 
And I would suggest to you that Daniel has earned the right to say that to us because he lived a life that is far more demanding than I will, that you ever will, that any of us will. For think again about what I share with you about his story. He was the governor, he was the leader of one-third of an entire empire. And you go, well, that means nothing to me. Well, let me give it to you like this. Maybe this will make sense to you. Daniel being the governor of one-third of the Medo-Persian Empire would be like today, you and I being the governor of every state in the United States simultaneously east of the Mississippi. 180 million people, folks, 58% of the U.S. population. David's, or rather, Daniel's responsibility workload was immense. Beyond anything, I would implode if I had that kind of workload. I mean, tens of thousands of people were probably clamoring for his attention on a daily basis. Nor can we say of Daniel, well, you know what? His work probably suffered because he prioritized his spiritual life. In response to that, I just want to say, go back and let's read again verse 3 of chapter 6. For what it says to us is Daniel soon proved himself more capable than all the other administrators and high officers because of Daniel's great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire empire. In other words, David, uh, I'm going to try it one more time. Daniel, I've got David on the mind. Daniel put his spiritual life principles and practices above everything else, <clears throat> even above his work. And he never dropped a single plate. He never fumbled a single ball. And I would suggest to you folks, it wasn't because, in fact, it was his spiritual disciplines that made him do all those other things so successfully. It truly is what set him up for greatness. And here's the final kicker. I would say to us, folks, none of us can say, like we're tempted to say, well, but I'm not Daniel. I I'm just not naturally disciplined. As if discipline is something like blonde hair and blue eyes, that we're just born with it. Folks, spiritual discipline, any discipline for that matter, is a choice. And therefore, it's a choice we can all make. It's something we could all lean into. So let's take a second and let's talk about how we choose spiritual discipline. And the answer to that question is you and I choose spiritual discipline the same way Daniel chose spiritual discipline. And let me just break it down for us. Here's the first thing we do. We need to set a time. We need to set a time. Look at verse 10 of Daniel chapter 6. It says this, he prayed three times a day just as he has always done. Now let me take the pressure off for some of you. I'm not suggesting that your time needs to be three times a day. That's probably not the time for you. It's probably not the time for me. But here's what we've got to make sure. We have a time. And in setting that time, folks, let, let me just give you the one rule when it comes to having a time with God. The best time to set for a time with God is when you're at your best. The best time for you to set to be with God is when you're at your best. Now, you've grown up like I have. Many of us have grown up hearing, well, you've got to do it in the morning. And if you're a morning person, absolutely, you need to do that, set that time with God in the morning. But if you're a night person, you know, if you're somebody who doesn't even believe God exists before 10 a.m., then don't make it in the morning. For, when I was a college student, it didn't work in the morning, it didn't work late at night, the dorms were going crazy, in the morning I was exhausted, so as a college student, for me for a season, it was right after lunch. The students were going back to nap, the chapel was empty, and that was the time that I set with God. Here's the point. Find the time that you're at your best, then set it, and then honor it. And don't mess with it. Here's the second thing I'd say to you. The second thing we do to choose spiritual discipline is we need to set a place. 
Again, let's go back to verse 10. It says, Daniel went home and knelt down as usual in his upstairs room. For Daniel, that place was at home in a room upstairs. For us, that may be, you know, in our home office. It may be at the kitchen table before everyone gets up. It might be in our car in the parking lot before we go into work, before we go into class. It might be, as I have done for years, you know, simply in a chair in the corner in the basement. For some of you, like myself, who enjoy outside in the warm months, it might be sitting on a rock in the woods behind the house. It isn't important the place. What's important is you find a place, and then you go there regularly. And the place needs to meet this qualification, folks. It is a place where you can be absolutely, totally alone with God and uninterrupted. That's the, that's the key to the place. And finally, we need to have a plan. One more time, let's look at verse 10. It says, He went home and knelt down with the windows open toward Jerusalem. He prayed, prayed three times a day, giving thanks to God. And I don't have to read that. I don't think anyone could read that and say, I don't think David had a plan, or Daniel had a plan. I'll keep calling him David all morning long. You, when I say David, you say Daniel, okay? <laughs> so here, here's the thing. Clearly, Daniel knew what he was going to do when he had time with God. There was no confusion in his mind. And folks, we need that same kind of clarity. We need to have a plan. And if you don't have a plan... Or if you do have a plan, but like me, you have a heart to help new believers and people that are struggling with a plan have a plan, then I want you to take notes what I'm about to share with you. If you don't have a plan or you want to help people develop a plan, then I want to encourage you to consider the plan that's known as 7 Minutes with God. It's been around for decades. Some of you are familiar with it. I encountered it as a, as a new Christian in college. But here's how the plan works. The first 30 seconds of the day when you go to that time with God is you simply spend it preparing your heart and mind. The first 30 seconds, you simply, a half a minute, you simply spend it preparing your heart and mind, which really practically means this. You, you quiet yourself. You, you begin to just go, you know what, I'm going I'm to put it for me. I have to write it down. You're going to put those concerns, those thoughts, those worries aside, and I'm going to begin to focus on God. As Scott said, we believe God is present, omnipresent. In other words, he's present everywhere. So one of the things that we make a mistake doing in the church that, that I was disabused of is we often pray, God, we're going to ask you to come. Well, if God's omnipresent, he's already here. So the proper prayer, the good theology, isn't we say, God, come. We say, God, make me aware of your presence. So that's what you begin to do in those first 30 seconds. Jesus said, wherever two or three gather together, there I am. God said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. The reality is we become aware that God is with us, that as our Father, He longs to be with us. We spend 30 seconds doing that. Then, the next thing we do is we spend four minutes listening to God. Four minutes listening to God. And the very best way, most reliable way for us to listen to God is by reading God's Word, by reading the Bible. We don't have to get in the lotus position, contemplate the lint in our navels. We need to just simply open God's Word and begin to read. And let me give you two words of counsel here. Number one have a translation of the Bible that's easy for you to read and understand. Now, like you, Lara and I, when we got married, got a family Bible. But it's in a translation, folks, that's honestly, and I mean this sincerely, it's harder for me to read than the Greek or the Hebrew. Because it's written in 16th century English. And so get yourself a translation that's easy to understand. If you don't have one, take the one that's in, in the back of the, of the pew in front of you and, and take that home as our gift or get on you version and begin to read that. That's the first thing. Second, begin reading in the Gospel of John. Now, I was taught like you were when you read a book, you, begin at, you start at the beginning, right? 
That's not how you begin the seven minutes. Jesus said, if you see me, you've seen the Father. The very best place for you and I to begin is getting a full and complete picture of Jesus. Because when we do that, then we begin to understand some of these other things. So begin with the Gospel of John. And then with those two things in place, I want to encourage you to read for four minutes and then stop. You say four minutes? Yeah, here, here's why. And we all do four minutes. And here's the reason you do four minutes. Again, especially when you're working with new believers if you, or you've always struggled to have a consistent time with God. Because what you want to do is two things. One is you want to actually dwell in the Word. You want to spend time in the Word. You want, to, you want to dwell in it. You want it to dwell in you. And then the second thing you want to do is you want to learn to enjoy being in God's Word. See, one of the problems with many Bible plans, and I've tried them all, and they have strengths and weaknesses, each one of them, but folks, it's more important that you let God get into you than you cover the Bible in the entire year. I'm all for reading the Bible in a year. But the truth is, I see people go through the Bible at such a pace because we're not fast readers, our, our comprehension of God's Word is limited. And then we really get through it, but we never learned anything. It's never transformed us. So learn to just slow down, be in the Word, and learn to enjoy being there and hearing what God has to say to you. Now here's the final step in that plan. You spend two and a half minutes talking to God. And again, the biblical word for that is prayer. And again, let me give you a couple words of advice or counsel about prayer. First, pray as you can, not as you can't. The only rule, uh, the golden rule of prayer is pray as you can, not as you can't. For some of you, that means you need to pace. You don't have to get on your knees. For others of you, you need to get on your knees. For some of you, you need to do it sitting. Others, you need to do it standing. The reality is pray as you can, not as you can't. The second rule I'd give you, folks, is talk to God like you're talking to a friend rather than talking to God like you're trying to impress someone. And suddenly you begin to use vocabulary that isn't natural to you. You go back to that 16th century English, and that's all good and fine if it's meaningful for you, but most of us don't talk to our friends. If I would talk to my wife like some translations are written, Lara would think I've lost my mind. So just talk to God like you talk to a friend. And in talking to God about, do this. Talk to him about what you've read and impacted you. And talk to him about what you don't understand. He said he gave us the Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. So if you don't understand the part of that passage, ask him to enlighten you. To help, ask him to un unveil it for you. To, to help you understand it. And then the second thing you do is go back to that list you wrote down when you were quieting and preparing your heart. And talk to God about those problems. Talk to God about those concerns. Bring them to him in that two and a half minutes. Now, I say that, and some of you who are prayer warriors have been praying all your life are going... Really? Two and a half minutes? Kind of like four minutes with prayer? But here's what I also know. Some of you, when I said two and a half minutes, you go, I don't know how in the world I could fill two and a half minutes talking to God. And others of you, you go, I, I can fill it, no problem with that. I mean, I could talk like Jerry can, but it'll probably just be rambling. It'll be, just, it'll be flow of consciousness. And so if either one of those are true for you, then I'm going to encourage you to, to, to try using the, ac the acrostic acts that I have there on your outline. And i got to keep moving here. But let me just net it out for you. If you've never seen acts before, A stands for adoration. Again, that comes from Latin, and, and it's a word that, again, we don't use in our vocabulary today. If I said, you know, I'm going to go home and, and express adoration to my wife, I'd probably make you a little nervous. Adoration simply means worship, Okay. And so, when we, in, that, in that part of that, and this is about 40 seconds, folks, if you net this out, if you're going to spend two and a half minutes, you're spending less than 40 seconds here. 
And you just literally, in adoration, simply acknowledge God's goodness, God's faithfulness, God's love, His holiness, His character. You just acknowledge and worship who God is. C is confession. And we all know what confession is. Confession is I acknowledge the wrongs that I've did, willfully, volitionally, intentionally. And the second part of that is I do what I do when I confess something to my wife, that I've blown it. What do I do? I ask for forgiveness. I ask for her help, and in this moment, we ask God for God's help, for His strength, His presence, that we won't do it again. We won't fall into the same temptation. T stands for thanksgiving. This is where we express gratitude for God to not only who He is, but what He's done in our life. And finally, S stands for supplication. Again, it's from Latin. It's a word that we don't use. If you'd invite me out to lunch and, and say, Jerry, can you go to lunch? Say, well, you know, let me go and, and supplicate my wife and see what she has to say. You go, I don't know what that means, but I feel uncomfortable about it. But the reality is, all it means is to plead humbly. And so what we do in supplication is we simply ask God for the things that we need in our life, the things that we need to do, He needs to do, and we're asking Him to do in us and for us and through us. So, that's how we not only pray, that's not only how we have a plan, but folks, that's ultimately how we choose spiritual discipline. Now let's get back to Daniel, and I'm running out of time. So how did it all end for Daniel? Well, if you're not familiar with your story, let me tell you. Daniel prayed, and when he was praying, other officials came in. As they planned, they caught him. They took him to King Darius, and Darius was, was heartbroken. But again, it was the law of the Medes and the Persians. He could not overturn his own rule. And so Daniel was tossed into the lion's den. But once again, God saved him, provided for him, and delivered him. And the end of the story, the rest of the story, is he, he was delivered. Darius not only instituted him, raised him up to be that second in command, but the men who had conspired against him, Darius had thrown into the lion's pit along with their family and their children. And the scripture says that before they hit the, the bottom of the pit, the lions had devoured them. The point is simply this, folks, that Daniel's choice for discipline propelled him, like all the others we've looked at, to greatness. Now with that, I need to very quickly, I want to net something out because not only have we learned lessons from these individuals, but there's things that we can learn from all five of these great leaders and models together. So let me give them to you real quick. And you have it printed there in your outline. The first lesson we can learn from them, three big lessons, is this. God honors those who honor him. God honors those who honor him. Because again, look at the list. Remember back to the series. Every person we studied, every single person we studied, we saw a clear and direct relationship between their choice and the final result. Right? I mean, every one of them. So, so what do we do? We saw Solomon chose wisdom. What he ended up? What was the final result? Riches. Esther chose personal sacrifice. What was the final result? She was cemented, established as queen. Joseph chose integrity and ended up as the second most powerful man in Egypt. Deborah chose courage and ended up being victorious in battle and receiving honor. Daniel chose discipline and ended up governor over the entire Medo-Persian Empire. The second lesson that we learned from all five of these individuals is this. Choices for greatness are seldom immediately rewarded. Choices for greatness are seldom immediately rewarded. In fact, what immediately happens typically is punishment, is kickback, with no promise of any reward. And all five of these great models and great examples, great men and women of God, realize that. 
I mean, again, let's net it out. Solomon expected poverty. Esther expected execution. Joseph expected imprisonment. Deborah expected war and possible death. Daniel expected the lion's den. And here's what we need to understand. Three of the five got exactly what they were expecting. Daniel did end up in the lion's den. Deborah did end up going to war. And Joseph did end up getting thrown into prison. But here's the lesson. They still chose the God-honoring thing. They still made the God-honoring choice. Which leads us to the third lesson, the big lesson that we learn from all these models of greatness, and that is even if they never received the result, if Solomon never received riches, if Esther never you know, ended up queen, if Joseph never was ruler, Deborah never won victory or honor, and Daniel never ended up governor, here's what we need to understand. They still would have been great because greatness is in the choice, not the outcome. Greatness for you and I is in the choice and not the outcome. So again, even if Joseph never got out of prison, even if Deborah had died in war, even if Daniel had been torn to pieces by the line, they still would have been great because they chose faithfulness to God above self-protection and self-promotion. I want to end with the true story Back about three or four decades ago, a reporter, I believe he was for, for the New York Times, was in Calcutta following Mother Teresa around through the streets as she cared for the sick and the dying. And as this reporter witnessed all of this, he finally said to Mother Teresa, all the need, all the, all the hurt, all the pain, he finally looked at Mother Teresa and said, do you ever lose heart? Do you ever say to yourself, why even bother? I mean, Mother Teresa, there's no way that you're ever going to be able to meet all these needs, to solve all these problems. And Mother Teresa, creating an infant that she literally had just picked up out of the gutter, looked at him and said, God doesn't call us to be successful. He calls us to be faithful. And folks, that's what true greatness is all about. Faithfulness to God, not success in your life and mine. Now, if God chooses to bring success in our lives like he did to Daniel and Solomon and Esther and the others, then so be it. But that is never the goal. The goal from start to finish, folks, is as Mother Teresa said, for God to find you and me faithful. And folks, that is the defining quality of living a great life. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for all that we've learned through this series. Thank you for these three men and two women who are true models for us. Thank you for recording their story. Thank you for the challenge they brought to our lives. And today especially, Father, thank you for the example and the challenge of Daniel. For him reminding us of the importance of choosing spiritual discipline because we understand today at least I hope we understand today, that choosing spiritual discipline is absolutely imperative if we're going to live a great life for you. So Father, my prayer today as we close is simply this, that I would pray that you'd help each and every one of us carve out at least seven minutes in our day to develop and deepen our relationship with God, to develop and, and and deepen our relationship with you through the presence and the power and the work of your Holy Spirit in your life. And I pray it in Jesus' name.
Amen. Thank you, Jerry. As we wrap up, I wanted to tell you about a couple of resources that we have available to help you um, develop that discipline um, of spending time with God. And uh, as Jerry already mentioned, um, one of those is available in front of you this morning, which is uh, the Bibles that are in the pew. So you can feel free to take that with you. If you need, want a different version, you can check out at the welcome desk on your way out. There's several others out there. If you need large print, um, that's also available at that welcome desk as well. We also have our daily bread um, that's available. There's also some in the resource rack that's right by the, the double doors when you uh, come in, but there's also some large print there. There's also some great resources that can help you as uh, to spend time with God, uh, and you can find those there in that rack as well. Also, if you are a first-time guest with us, we have this book. It's called How Good is Good Enough, and uh, that is our free gift to you. If you um, would like to pick that up on the way out, feel free to do that. And then for those of you who are online, if you will just, uh, in that Connect card uh, that you have there available online, let us know, put in the comment section that you would like any of these resources, and we would be glad to send those out to you as soon as possible. Um, but you guys also with the green card here in person, feel free, uh, again, to ask any questions. You can write prayer requests on there as well. Uh, or if you want any of these resources and uh, you don't find them, just let us know, and we'll be glad to reach out and get that to you. You know, as I was thinking about this, and, uh, you know, each week we talk about the generosity uh, and being generous with what God has given us. And, you know, these resources, that's how we're able to give those away to you guys and to, to people who are watching online uh, or that come into the church during the week. And uh, so thank you for doing that. But, you know, we all have an excuse of why we can't give. And so, you know, no matter what age we are, what income level we're at, you know, wherever we are on the, the, the rung of the personal balance sheet ladder there, um, you know, we have a reason not to give. We could say, you know, I'm, I'm impoverished, or I'm too young, or I have debts, my family's growing, I have a mortgage, and auto loan payments, and uh, I have impending retirement, or I'm on a fixed income. So many, many reasons, right, that we can talk about uh, or tell ourselves why we want to hang on to everything, uh, every dime that we have. And so, but God's kingdom is an upside-down logic, right? So, you know, we think the more I give, the less I'm going to have, but that is false in God's kingdom, um, and because it defies His economic convention uh, and His structure. And so, you know, God is incredibly generous, right? He gives us His love, His mercy. He gives us resources and things to do things. And, you know, when He ignites uh, our hearts with generosity and sets a, a fire in our lives, then we become generous, and he sends uh, us even more when we do that, when we start to give. And so Proverbs says, a generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. And so, you know, what makes God's, uh, God's generosity convection system work is it's not a closed system. Uh, he enjoys injecting more resources into the lives of his children, and he's a God of abundance and not scarcity. And so he loves it when we trust his word and we expect his promises, and he loves it when we show the same generosity toward people uh, that he has shown to us. So I want you to say this with me uh, as we are about to dismiss, but the more I give, the more I have. Would you say it with me? The more I give, the more I have. And so you can give this morning. There's envelopes at the back of the room if you'd like to give in person. Uh, online, there's a give link in the chat window. 
you can also give uh, electronically. You can find information in the bulletin as well as online. So, but thank you so much for your generosity. Thank you for your attention today. I know we're a little over time, and I appreciate you giving us the opportunity uh, just to speak about those things again this morning. Don't forget to check the Welcome Desk and the Resource Center out there if you'd like to pick up any of these resources, and I hope to see you all again next week. You're dismissed.